Hello, and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. I'm your host, Elle Rochford, amateur baker, professional sociologist. This week, I am incredibly excited and honored to have Dr. Ella Hawkins on the pod. Uh, You might be familiar with her work because she is an Instagram influencer. Um, I do not think she would describe herself that way. Um, She is incredibly kind. Uh, She is a design historian out of Birmingham, England, and she was recently featured in the Washington Post lifestyle section. Her work is incredible, and she does it on biscuits, or in the U.S., cookies. So this was really the perfect guest for this podcast because it's got history, it's got social sciences, theater, and baking. And I thought after the last episode was on a pretty intense topic, we would take a look at some of the lighter side of uh, history. And so we are going to explore Shakespearean costume design, Jane Austen, and the most incredible set of cookies I've ever seen in my life. Before we get to that interview, I want to do a couple bits of housekeeping, uh, tell you what's going on, and give you some updates. So I am a PhD student, a PhD candidate even. There's a bunch of distinctions. uh, If you're non-academic in the audience, there's a bunch of different levels and layers. And honestly, I might do a whole episode about how (laughs) research institutions work. But because of this, I have a lot of dissertation work to get done and a lot of articles to finish up, and I am on the job market. Uh, And I think I'm going to go on hiatus for hopefully just a month, but it might be a little bit longer as I'm on the job market. When I come back, I will do a whole deep dive into what it's like trying to get a job as a professor right now. So I need to take a little breather uh, because my schedule is very, very full right now. And podcasting, uh, unfortunately, is not my primary job. So I will be taking a few weeks off. I will continue to post my baking creations as I have time to make them on Instagram at Proofing and Lies and on Twitter at Proofing Capital L. Um, In the meantime, I am spreading the podcast largely through uh, my own networks, uh, through word of mouth. So if you are a listener, please recommend episodes to your friends. Uh, I am trying to uh, grow the podcast. Uh, Not opportune as I am taking a break right now, but I'm hoping to come back full force and with a secure job placement so that I can produce episodes on a more regular basis. So there's been a lot of updates on topics that we've covered in the podcast, and I want to kind of circle back and share with you some good episodes, maybe to share with a friend or give a re-listen to with this new context. Um, First off, very exciting, uh, episode 23, I talked to Drs. Tyrell Connor and Daphne M. Penn. Their book, Dark Side of Reform, is available now. Um, This is an excellent collection of work. Tyrell and Daphne brought together some really fascinating people to create different chapters of this book, and I highly recommend it. Uh, Listeners, check out this book, request it in the library. Fun fact, um, requesting from your local library 
is huge. So if you don't want to buy a book, particularly if you think you're not going to read an academic book, again, requesting it through your library shows publishers that there's demand for it. And all of that helps the people who wrote and work on the book when it first comes out. Um, so definitely check that out. It's called The Dark Side of Reform. It explores the policy implications of um, different legislation, uh, different changes, and how that has impacted racial minorities. Uh, the other thing that's going on is sex texting is back in the news. Uh, the Olympics are engaging in very controversial, scientifically speaking, sex testing to test different um, levels of testosterone in women. It's always women. Um, and so there's been a new series of coverage about trans athletes and testosterone testing in general. So I recommend you check out our episode 26 where I talked to Dr. Carissa Conrad about sex testing and how it doesn't really make any sense, but how sports uphold gender. Uh, and it's a really great episode. Uh, Carissa is a fabulous person. And so I highly recommend listening to that. And then on a darker update, uh, the news out of Minneapolis is that there was another no-knock uh, raid that resulted in the death of Amir Locke. And so on the note of police killings, I wanted to update you on uh, episode 30, where we talked to Tanya Goldsby about the police reform in Cleveland. We were able to pass that. It was a huge, huge victory for citizens. Uh, so we talked there about the particular issues in Cleveland, but about what city level changes can be made, uh, because there really is no national push to get legislation through. Uh, the legislation that's been suggested um, just hasn't, hasn't made it into law. So we talk about what's going on in Cleveland, and we were successful in getting reform on the city level. So those are some episodes that I think are worth a re-listen or a first listen if you missed them the first time around. Um, please enjoy the back catalog as I take a little bit of a break. I will be back. You can hear in my Hamantaschen uh, episode that I am a little bit struggling. I just moved, and so my kitchen is not organized. Uh, we just got hit with a very significant snowstorm, and so baking has kind of taken a back seat these last couple weeks. I'm hoping to get back fully into it, uh, and I am starting with what is probably the most ambitious project ever, which is replicating Ella Hawkins' uh, stained glass cookies. Definitely go to her Instagram. There are absolutely stunning pieces of art. And the, again, Washington Post profile of her talks about how it's almost painful to try to eat these cookies because they are so incredibly beautiful. So I highly recommend you check out all of her photos. Uh, she even has Broken Ancient Pottery, with, which ties into uh, one of our other episodes, which we interviewed Nadira Hill. So, you know, lots of tie-ins here. Um, it's a great, great episode to start in on. So recommend it to your friends. I, and you can tell this in the interview, am absolutely thrilled to be talking with her. Uh, she is incredibly cool. And the whole project is so fascinating, and it's exactly everything I like. But her job is maybe the coolest job in the world. And I say that as someone who loves my job. But man, 
being a design historian is so cool. Uh, so you see me uh, being less of the serious interviewer and more of um, maybe a fangirl because she is living the dream. Um, she even wrote a piece about the costume designs in Hamilton. I don't think maybe astronaut. Um, I mean, archaeologist is a cool job, too. I guess what I'm trying to say is start your own podcast and talk to the most interesting people you can find because they will talk back to you and it is an absolute delight to get to know these people. Uh, so enough about me telling you about her work. I'm going to turn it over to the interview so you can hear firsthand how cool Ella Hawkins is. Hello and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. I'm here with Dr. Ella Hawkins, the University of, sorry, Sorry, I was looking at Warwick, but you're you're actually no, that's fine. The University of Birmingham. Uh, how are you doing today, Doctor? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? Good, good. Snowy, but good. Yeah. Um, I'm incredibly excited to talk to you. Uh, you have a fascinating job, and you have a baking Instagram, which will absolutely appeal uh, to my audience. Uh, so, could you tell us a little bit about your work? Absolutely. So um, my day job is that I'm a teaching fellow uh, at the University of Birmingham uh, at a place called the Shakespeare Institute. So I'm responsible for teaching all kinds of different modules to undergraduate students and postgraduate students who are interested in Shakespeare, early modern drama, anything to do with that. Um, my research is all about Elizabethan and Jacobean dress um, in costume design for Shakespeare and kind of expanding to other approaches to costume design as well. And um, about a year ago, I just started making um, very detailed biscuits or cookies, as they're known in the US, um, that linked uh, in various ways to, to my research and to my academic work, but also just more generally my love of design and history and archaeology and that kind of thing. So they've sort of dovetailed in a strange way. Um, I, I love when baking connects to work as um, <laughs> evidenced by the podcast. How does I guess I'm just like, I don't even know where to start. I'm so excited <laughs> to talk about mm -hmm. costumes. Um, what exactly does it entail to be a historian of costumes? It's a really interesting thing to research because your half of you is looking at the source material that the costumes are based on. So for me, that's all about early modern dress, looking at ruffs and doublets and hose and farthingales and portraits and the surviving garments in museum collections all that kind of stuff that I love in and of itself. But then also looking at how those sources have been um, adapted and manipulated and reimagined by artists who are working right now in order to make these really old plays say something interesting to modern audiences. So it's kind of a translation process that's interesting about it, but it's also just an opportunity to relish looking at all of these beautiful, or not always beautiful, sometimes strange or just interesting artifacts. So there's two different layers to it, and I love both of them equally, but that's that's my favourite thing, I think, about researching costume design. What has been your favourite play or your favourite uh, costuming of a character? Oh, that's such a difficult question. I think what I found from researching it is the more I look at something, the more I love it for the very, the very specific thing that it's doing. There's a really well-known production of Twelfth Night by Shakespeare's Globe. 
Uh, it was staged a whole bunch of times across quite a long period of time, first in 2002, and then it was revived. It went over to Broadway in the US in 2013. Um, but it was these reconstructed Elizabethan or sort of reimagined re reconstructed Elizabethan outfits where there was handwoven fabrics and um, actual Elizabethan lace. And it really tried to capture what early modern people might have worn while also making it a certain aesthetic that would appeal to modern audiences and just so much work and so much detail and so much innovation went into that production and it's kind of become legendary um, I think beyond Shakespeare studies it's one of those productions that people really queued up to get return tickets for Mark Rylance played Olivia and wore this incredible gown and um, so yeah I think that's the one that jumps to mind but it's very difficult to choose one because there are so many great productions and so many great costumes but that one jumped to mind. I'm fascinated by handwoven fabrics so so how long would it take to make to make one of these costumes? An incredibly long time especially if you're thinking that you've got to start with not even an existing piece of fabric like you're having it handwoven and these fabrics were handwoven in Italy um, designed by Jenny Chiromani um, and cut by Luca Costigliolo and um, basically so these fabrics were commissioned and then they had to wait for the fabric to be woven according to a certain design and then get the fabric back to the UK and then find a way of reconstructing these surviving you know four centuries old gowns and making them fit the body and it's sort of a, a process of figuring out what strange components are in these surviving garments that we don't understand but like trying them and seeing oh actually this weird strip of fabric around the edge of the gown makes the the train move in a certain way so it's like a whole discovery process and I don't know how long it took but a very long time you know and, and everything was fitted specifically to the actor actor's body um, rather than being something that could be worn by lots of different people so the I can't even imagine the level of skill and detail and time and imagination that went into that it's it's incredible trying to organize this question in a way that is not incredibly biased but but what is it that costuming brings to to a production what is it that that this level of interest intricacy adds to to the performance it can vary massively between productions um, interestingly, there's a really great, great quote from a designer called Paul Taswell, who designed the costumes for Hamilton. And his perspective is that if a costume, this is misquoting, but I'll, I'll give you the gist. If a costume is doing its job well, you won't notice it, like it will just get out of the way. If a costume is not doing its job well, you will notice it and it will stick out. So it's almost like these costumes become like a subconscious kind of communication where you're registering all this information that it's telling you about who this person, this character is, where they come from, how old they are, you know, what kind of qualities they have, what kind of aspirations they have, how they relate to each other. If there's a family on stage, there might be subtle hints of how they're connected to each other. All these tiny clues that you're just registering in the background. Um, as well as having this, perhaps an overall aesthetic that gives a production its kind of identity. Um, so I love that quote. I love the idea that they can sometimes completely just get out of the way and that that's not a bad thing. But it can imagine be very frustrating also from the perspective of a designer that if the costumes get out of the way, 
and you don't notice them like if your job is done well then you become invisible is a really strange uh strange thing so I love to celebrate that work and kind of bring it to the forefront as much as I can because it's it's unlike any other skill that I can think of really that's so fascinating to me I'm thinking of the example in uh, Knives Out the the sweater from Knives Out Chris Evans sweater really captured everyone's attention everyone was trying to figure out where to buy it or what to how to knit it Um, and the designer was really fascinating in in talking about why they chose this sweater and that they had intentionally frayed some of the yarn because it was supposed to be this is this incredibly nice sweater but he was a careless person and all of that um, is getting conveyed but people did notice and so I think there is almost a balance to this where, uh, or Game of Thrones, I think about the level of embroidery that went into those costumes, where the costumes both stole the show, but, but also did fade back. And so I'm wondering, outside of Shakespeare, what kind of costuming catches your eye or what details do you notice as an expert? Uh, all kinds of things. And I think that's where my biscuits and my cookies are the outlet for that is all exactly Game of Thrones as an example. I was innocently rewatching season one a few months ago just to rewatch Game of Thrones. And then I saw a detail that was like, oh, that would make such a good cookie. And then I had to make a whole set inspired by Game of Thrones design. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not a specific thing that catches my eye. It could just be a certain uh, combination of whether it's colours or textures or patterns that just work in a certain way that just really capture my imagination. Um, but yeah, the Game of Thrones costumes are a great example of something that the, the amount of detail, you know, there's a whole coffee shop book coffee table book not a coffee shop but a coffee table book that has these costumes pictured in that exquisite detail and it's like you get access to that information in a different format and then you can go back to the series and appreciate the series in a different level so they're there you don't necessarily notice them the first time around but they're there and you can come back to them another one another interesting example I've come across that does have a, a cookie life in the world is um the film emma that came out in 2021 um the adaptation autumn de Wilde's adaptation of emma um i made a set based on that because it had such a striking aesthetic like an overall combination of colors and textures that just were so individual to that film um but there was something about how they reconstructed these very specific surviving garments so there was a jacket uh, called a spencer jacket i think it's called um and also an evening dress one is in a fashion museum i think in bath and the other one is in the victorian albert museum in london and these two items of clothing have become kind of iconic for people who are into dress history like you can go and see them and you recognize them if they appear anywhere they are reproduced every now and again in period dramas or nods to them they're sort of just iconic for some reason and it's only the dress historians probably that are going to recognize them but this film reconstructed those very specific garments in absolute exquisite detail so that you see them on screen and you're like I've seen that dress in a museum and they've recreated it and it's like this extra level of excitement that people who are sort of into dress history get from it and I find that really interesting whether they're whether those pieces were included in the film as a nod that people would recognise or whether they were just perfect examples that they would, in an ideal world, go to the museum and treat it as their costume shop and sort of borrow it. So I'd love to know what the idea was behind that. But but yeah, it's glorious to see those details, especially when they're done so beautifully. Even I love it, though, when 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 films and, and TV shows reimagine it totally and get it inaccurate. Like people have different opinions about that. 
Um, but I love it when it gets completely reimagined and made out of latex or, you know, something like that. I just love the the creativity that comes along with with reproducing those things. So you did a stint at the Jane Austen house, correct? I did, yeah. Oh, that sounds amazing. So how, um, what sort of range of history are you an expert in? Oh, expert, I would say my expertise is on Elizabethan and Jacobean inspired costume design for Shakespeare. Um, so I wouldn't describe myself as an expert in Elizabethan and Jacobean dress. There are other people that know so much more about it than I do. I dabble. I know enough to be able to kind of know what I'm looking at um, quite accurately sometimes or know where to find that information. But I'm not an expert in that historical period as a historical period. So that's my expertise, but I have very much dabbled in various other areas and have a lot of love and passion for different, you know, wildly different areas like Tiffany Glass and William Morris and kind of other arts and crafts and, and like Jane Austen, uh, periods of like Regency, Georgian. I've also done biscuit cookie stuff on like ancient Greek artifacts. I, I'm quite, and, and, and what else? The... um. Staffordshire hordes, so like Anglo-Saxon metalwork, that kind of thing. So I'm not limited in terms of my interests, but my expertise is very specifically costume design. That's deeply relatable as as a PhD candidate. Is um, yeah, I should not throw expertise around, but certainly from my eyes, you are an expert in these things. What what drew you to Shakespeare? Obviously, there's um, a lot to draw in, but how did you uh, get on this path? That's a good question. And I don't know exactly what it was. Something grabbed me completely. And it was when I was doing my undergraduate degree. Um, I'd done my first year and I was choosing my modules for the second and third year. And there was a module about early modern playing places, so like playhouses and early modern playing practices. And I don't know what it was. I just read the, you know, the blurb for this module and was like, this is the module I have to get on. Like, if I don't get onto this module, I will be devastated. So I did that and I absolutely loved it. It was one of those modules that I had to like, I bought all the books beforehand. I spent the summer reading them so I could start early because I was so excited because I'm such a nerd. <laughs> And then like carried on, there was another module I could do about like designing Shakespeare. And that got me into like costume design, stage design. Um, my MA I did in Shakespeare because I'd, I'd found that that was my thing. Um, I was a, that's when I sort of decided I was a Shakespeare person and just carried on getting more and more niche, I guess. So like an MA in Shakespeare performance and then a PhD in costume design. And yeah, and here I am now still writing about that. Do you also make costumes or consult on the making of costumes? I have dabbled. Uh, during my PhD, I started, I, I'd never made any clothes before, but because I was working with costume designers and writing about costume makers, and I'd done some sort of training days with them in order to understand the process, I just had this urge to start doing it myself so I could understand it in quite a hands-on way. So that if I was writing about, you know, the sewing of a seam and what fabrics are chosen, that I could actually understand what I was talking about. So I don't have any training besides these very short courses I did with specific um, costume makers. So I've made in the background, um, which will not be <laughs> visible on a podcast, but I have um, a pair of early modern bodies. So it's like an early modern corset um, based on one a set that was on the effigy of Queen Elizabeth I. 
So they are by no means historically accurate. They were a sort of experimental thing. The edging on them is made out of curtains. There's various things that are not ideal about them. But I have dabbled. I've not consulted on any um, costume design or film or anything like that. I think because my my expertise is costume design, so it gets a little bit meta. They would want somebody who is an expert in the period. Uh, so I'm not the best person for that. Um, yeah, so I've, I've dabbled a little bit and I love it. Um, but yeah, we'll see what happens next, I suppose. I'm curious if there are, are there tensions between people who enjoy reimagining or modern interpretations and, and kind of purists of the period? I can imagine that would create problems. Do you mean in terms of like costume design, like say for Shakespeare or people who are interested in like different areas of study? In terms of Shakespeare, I, I can imagine that certain historians enjoy reimaginings and certain historians would that would be an, an anthema to them yeah I mean there's always massively divergent views on like how Shakespeare should be staged it's in the media quite a lot now um especially in terms of casting choices um there are lots of traditionalists and the word tradition gets used um to sort of mean very white and very you know you know all male or historical dress as opposed to um productions that might reflect the modern world um, so there are lots of difficult conversations and there's a lot of work that's being done um, because it's very important that theatre reflects, you know, the diversity of the world around it. So, um, yeah, there's, there's lots of difficult conversations about that. And, and particularly there is a real desire to have historical dress Shakespeare by some. Some people love to see Shakespeare staged as it would have looked in its own period. The interesting thing is we don't really know what Shakespeare looked like in its original period. We have an idea uh, but a lot of it is sort of assumptions are not based on much evidence. And um, a lot of our ideas about Shakespeare actually come from the 18th century, not from the 16th century. So this idea that Shakespeare was like the genius of his time and that he was staged in jaunty caps and doublet and hose, um, that all comes from sort of the 18th century onwards. So there's this whole other layer of, of, sort of writing and reading about Shakespeare that isn't immediately obvious. It's very interesting. Well, and that hits at something uh, we try to cover a lot on the podcast, which is common misconceptions and misinformation. So what is it that people often get wrong about, about costuming or about Shakespeare specifically? Um, mm, good question. I think, hmm. so... I mean, we, it's, it's, we don't even know that it's wrong. It's just we don't know. So there are sort of, say, the assumption that Shakespeare performed in, like, Dublin Hose, la, la, la. All we have is this one drawing that may or may not be of a Shakespeare production and performance that was drawn by someone called um, Peachum, Henry Peachum, and it's alongside a little excerpt of text from, from Titus Andronicus. And this drawing shows some people wearing sort of doublets and hose, but also, say, a laurel wreath, something that looks a bit like a toga, some medieval armour. So that one drawing has sort of led to the conclusion that actors at that point wore eclectic costumes, you know, bits of modern dress, bits of historical dress, and that that's how they sort of were costumed. But we don't know what that drawing is of. We don't know if it's by someone who saw a Shakespeare production, if they just imagined it, if it's even anything related to Shakespeare. So it's very wobbly ground to be sort of basing, basing any theories on. And there's a whole idea in, you know, it's a whole practice in modern performance that people do eclectic costuming because it reflects the original. And there are other clues. There are clues in the text that there are references to doublets, there are references to hose, there are references to other sort of anachronisms, uh, but we just don't know for sure. 
So it's really sort of open territory in terms of what you can do um, with Shakespeare and, and there are all different justifications for it. That's so fascinating. You know, it's it's funny to me because I've, I've never seen Shakespeare in, um, you know, a, a large theatre. I've seen it largely produced at, at high schools or secondary schools in the U.S., which I'm sure is as it's meant to be seen. But it's so iconic, right? And I think Jane Austen is is similar in the sense that these are really relatable stories, mm-hmm. um, even today. And it's interesting to see this desire for the historical costumes with this kind of resonant themes, I guess, resonant themes. Yeah, I don't know. This is this is just so fascinating to me. So I guess as as someone very outside of this field who do you who do you work with or uh what kind of fields interact and intersect with this oh all kinds of different fields you can do shakespeare and lo- loads of stuff um so my fields that i sort of overlap in i'm sort of primarily shakespeare studies also there is a field of costume studies which is much wider you know shakespeare appears but is very much a minority figure in a much bigger world of costumes and clothing and that kind of thing there's dress history um there's also things like audience studies reception studies looking at how audiences find meaning in what they're seeing and how they engage and how they respond to performance but but Shakespeare's all, all kinds of like it said there's so many different ones that I'm my mind's gone completely blank in terms of what you can write about in relation to Shakespeare everything Shakespeare in relation to the modern world Shakespeare and race Shakespeare and gender Shakespeare and um, just ideas of like performativity and things like that but then also Shakespeare in its early modern context what it reflects about early modern culture um, and the different people who might have performed in the plays and watched the plays and what London was like and what the regions were like or just so many different things there's a whole you can have so many different careers you could go through so many lifetimes and do a different facet of Shakespeare studies each time. I'm wondering too, I'm thinking about uh, my favorite modern interpretation of Shakespeare is probably 10 Things I Hate About You. And I remember reading Taming of the Shrew and going, okay, so it's pretty loosely based. It's pretty loosely based. But I'm wondering what's what's your favorite reinvention of a Shakespearean story? Hmm, can't think of any. (laughs) It's the top of my head. Oh, I mean, I guess, what does jump to my mind is that in places where, like, say, if I look back at things I watched as a child and didn't know they were based on Shakespeare, like The Lion King, like there's one's based on Hamlet, one's based on Romeo and Juliet. Um, there's Romeo and Juliet more these days, another adaptation, which I've not actually seen. Um, but I do mention in my book, actually, and it's I, I write about just the opening scene of Nomi and Juliet because it has this little gnome who's standing on this like plush curtain stage and he starts reading the prologue of Romeo and Juliet like two households both alike in dignity and he's got this huge long scroll that like goes out into the audience and then he gets like kicked off the stage because they're like no this is not going to be a boring traditional performance of, ha- of um, Romeo and Juliet it's going to be a modern adaptation and I found that very interesting so yeah, I guess where Shakespeare appears is what's fascinating. Like all these different corners of pop culture where he just shows up <laughs> out of blue. Oh, one thing that, again, this comes from my book, but is one of my favourite things, is um, Hendrix Gin co-opted Shakespeare a few years ago uh, for um, one of its campaigns where it decided that for National Cucumber Day, <laughs> they were going to celebrate you know, gin on National Cucumber Day. Um, I think it's the 14th of June, something like that. 
and they dressed up all these different cucumbers as different cultural things and they had the Shakespearean cucumber um, and it was just a cucumber wearing a ruff <laughs> which is hilarious because Shakespeare there's very little evidence to suggest that he actually ever wore a ruff a ruff was something that was worn by the Elizabethan elite um, and was a very very high maintenance garment that would have had to be set you know but with starch and washed everything you know for every wearing it was all go floppy and you'd have to reset it so hours and hours and hours of labor went into maintaining this a garment that if you went outside wearing it it would go floppy in the rain or in the wind so you'd have to carry it in a special box so because they appear in so many portraits um people or we, we generally assume that everybody in the elizabethan period wore roughs like that's just what people wore but it's sort of a very narrow um element of society actually had access to that and Shakespeare probably wasn't one of them so um the fact that we now associate Shakespeare with the rough and that a cucumber could be Shakespearean because it's wearing a rough is really really wild that's incredibly fascinating I I've never really considered what went into a rough mm. um, but as you describe it that that makes total sense so was it just popular and maybe this can't be known but was it just popular because of how much effort it had to take and that the people wearing it wouldn't have been doing that effort so it kind of showed your status or was there mm -hmm. some kind of beauty aesthetic to it we don't know for sure but probably both like definitely kind of material wealth you're showing that you can afford a to you can afford to pay somebody to do that kind of labor on such a regular basis that you have access to that kind of labor but also that you're not doing yourself manual labor because if you were then your rough would go floppy so it was kind of a statement of you know i'm so rich that i'm just going to stay inside and just sit here perfectly with my ruffle set but also it does sort of frame the face it does this theory is that it reflects light because it's sort of a pale it's not white because it you know we didn't have bleachy sort of situations at that point it would have been sort of off-white but the light would have reflected onto the face and framed it and really drawn attention to it there's theories about how um the um the body was sort of very much morphed into these very unnatural shapes so you see sort of puffy bottoms you know puffy trousers or, or pants and and that kind of shaped torso and that that was another component that sort of made the body an unnatural shape so we don't know for sure they were a fashion basically like we don't have an exact equivalent today but it maybe it's like if you imagine at the oscars all the crazy hairstyles that people wear that take hours and they just fall out again it's a little bit like that but in a in a garment that you would wear as a collar I'm, I'm so shaken that he didn't have a rough because I think every... He may have. He may have sometimes. But it, we, yeah, it's just the, the evidence suggests he probably maybe didn't wear one all the time. We don't know, but it's very much... We shouldn't assume that he did. Like The evidence questions that quite substantially. And I realize I'd, I'd be remiss if we didn't highlight your book. So can you tell us a little bit about your book and where people can find it? Of course. Yeah. Um, so it's coming out in June. Um, and it's called Shakespeare in Elizabethan Costume, colon, period dress in 21st century performance. Um, it's coming out with Bloomsbury, their um, Arden Shakespeare imprint. Uh, it's based on my PhD thesis, so I've spent a few years writing it. Um, yeah, and I'm really excited that it's coming out soon. Actually, right now I'm doing the proofreading for it. So I've got like a chapter a day that I'm going through in like minute detail. And I can't wait for that to be done and it to be like off my desk. <laughs> and coming out in a few months time maybe this is you're sick of looking at it but do you have a favorite section or a, a favorite passage of the book um a, a few of the things i've talked about so far are in there the rough stuff um 
Shakespeare wearing a ruff. I've got a chapter on that. Um, and I've also written about eclectic costume and that historical um, situation of what actors wore. But I think my favourite is one I haven't mentioned yet, which is a chapter. It's all about why and how Elizabethan and Jacobean dress is used now as a kind of way of expressing magic or fantastical or mythical elements on stage. So there's something about this historical dress that just has all this potential to represent magic or to be, you know, wonder or enchantment for a modern audience. So, for example, in um, A Midsummer Night's Dream, where we have a fairy world living alongside a, a sort of world of mortals, um, I write about a production where Elizabethan dress was used for the fairies and that's what made them otherworldly and kind of fantastical. And also in The Tempest, there are these three goddesses, these like ancient Greek or ancient Roman goddesses that just appear for this very short sequence. Um, they just sort of appear in this other, you know, this other world of the play and then disappear again. And they're in a production as being, in a few different productions actually, as being Elizabethan and Jacobean. So I have a chapter that really explores just where that comes from, like why, why this particular period of history can support magic now and what the associations are, where they've come from, and that that period has become kind of a fantasy fairy tale in our modern cultural association, in our modern sort of imagination. Um, this period of like explorers and, you know, the nature and ruralness and, and that kind of thing, where, where all that comes from. So that I really enjoyed researching and writing. That's fascinating. Um, I'm thinking about too, like uh, vampire costuming is always, it's never the 80s. It's always something yeah. else, you know, like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious if there's anything you had to cut from the book. Um, or anything that you had to leave out of the book that you want to talk about? Nothing substantial. It was a, a process of just streamlining. <laughs> so all the bits that were cut were sort of, you know, darlings that you, know, you say you have to kill your darlings in your writing. They're just small details that out of context don't mean very much, but just sort of add an extra level of detail to stuff. So, so that's all that really got cut as far as I can remember um yeah I guess the good thing about that is there's always material for the next book <laughs> that's the hope anyway so speaking of the little details what is your favorite little detail in a costume or something that just like a little addition that that kind of catches your eye when you look at a piece of clothing or a costume I think oh I don't know about in a general sense one just I was thinking about anything I've heard about that has stuck with me that I didn't see in a costume, but I love to know that it happened. And there is a, a lovely one from this production of Hamlet that was at Shakespeare's Globe in 2018. And um, the designer was um, E.M. Parry and they created, they added these embroidered patches to like a bomber jacket for Hamlet. And there was just two bees uh, embroidered on the jacket so nobody else noticed but the cat the actor playing um hamlet knew that it was like 2b or not 2b and there were just 2b's on there i know so like i love hearing about those little things that are not for the audience you know they're for the actors playing the parts they're for the the relationship between the designer and the actors because it's a really intimate relationship if you think about it um you know going through that together and creating something that works for everybody so um I loved hearing about that one um and anything anything that's sort of a secret I like I like to hear about no I love that and I think it does add some kind of layer that you know the audience doesn't see but you can still appreciate I, I feel like there are things in, in baking that are a little bit similar like a an ingredient that maybe you don't really taste, but like highlights the flavor of another ingredient. 
Like there's yeah. something special about that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I do want to talk. So you've, you've been making your biscuits for a little over a year. Were you a big baker before this? Yeah, I've always been a big baker. I've always been the person that friends and family will be like, oh, Ella will make the birthday cake. Ella will make the wedding cake. And I'm always very happy to do that. So I think I've just always enjoyed baking as a hobby. And for quite a long time, the the detail element manifested more in, say, big celebration cakes, like wedding cakes, birthday cakes, you know, tiered cakes. Um, and there was, I'd, I dabbled in biscuits and cookies before. It was something I really appreciated seeing other bakers do as a kind of art form, but hadn't got far into myself. It was only really, like, I'd done a few before the pandemic, but I started doing it quite intensively during the pandemic because I could post them um, to family without them being damaged in the post. So when I couldn't make someone a birthday cake, I could make them a set of very extravagant cookies and they could have that and it wouldn't get broken or damaged in the post and they would keep for a little while. So that was the that was where the intensive cookie baking <laughs> began. But I have done it for a long time. And they are stunning. I, I encourage my listeners and we'll link your um, your Instagram handle in the description. But you're at this point an influencer. You are a, a <laughs> influencer on Instagram. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that's been like. Oh, yeah, it's been very strange. Um, yeah, it's sort of grown slowly. I don't know if I'm an influencer. I have some followers. Um, I think what I do... I fell into my niche basically and I didn't realize there was a niche to be fallen into I started off by making sort of cookies biscuits that were inspired by designs that other people had made and then I just had this idea the one the one where I sort of made a step forward first of all I bought a, pr a small projector so it's this tiny projector that goes above my desk and it points down at like a 90 degree angle. And it means that I can use that to transfer designs from my computer or that I've sketched onto a cookie, um, which was a huge step forward in terms of how complex I could make the designs because I could sketch them by hand and then transfer them because you don't have a lot of margin for error on the, the biscuit surface. So having that flexibility made a big difference. But I had this William Morris, this arts and crafts calendar that I'd had for a couple of years in the V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum. And um, I just looked at it in the corner of the office that I'm sat in right now. And I was like, huh, they would make great cookies because there's something about the, it was something about the combination of colours in the design. And in William Morris designs, there's kind of a background layer that has one level of detail. And then there's another level of detail on top of that. And that's exactly how you make biscuits, is you have a background layer and then you add detail on top. And you can work by something called wet on wet, where you're sort of adding drops of colour. So you could do exactly a very similar effect by using icing. So I thought, great, I'm just going to see what happens. I'm going to try it. So I just picked some designs and I used like a little cutout of card and moved it over the design to find the best little snapshot um, that would work on, you know, in its own, um, in its own context. And I made them and I took a quick picture before I sent them off. I sent them to my partners, Nan and Grandad, and I sent a, another set the same to my friends in London and um, took a picture, put it on Twitter, started my work shift and I checked back like an hour later and it had gone absolutely wild. And I'd never, never gone wild or anything on Twitter before. They ended up getting about 206,000 likes or something. And it was like 11 million people or something had seen them. And there was like replies from like famous chefs and all kinds of bizarre. So that was odd. That was very, very odd. Um, and so that happened. 
And then I carried on just, you know, every few weeks I would make another. I was like, well, okay, so that idea worked out. I've had another idea. I'll see if that works out. And I've just carried on, you know, and I sort of go swing from one period or sort of source of inspiration to something else. So I think, what did I do after? Um, I've, I've done one set by based on the Outlander costume designs. Um, I've done some, I mentioned those Anglo-Saxon Staffordshire Horde, Tiffany glass and pottery shirts and like finds from the from mudlarkers on the Thames. So like all different periods of archaeology. And of course, Elizabethan and Jacobean designs that come from my own research um, and costume designs and early modern books. So I've just found, you know, I'll just be doing my own my own research and just or watching TV and then something will pop up and I'll be like, oh, no, I have to make a set. <laughs> I have to make a set based on that so it seems like I found this niche that was um biscuits a certain kind of level of detail on a, on a biscuit that was also linked to some element of design history or literary history or you know museum collections and I love it and I just spend a weekend you know it's, it's my I've always made stuff I get that urge to like create stuff whether that's clothes or whatever um and it just hits a spot like I'll just spend the weekend doing it and at the end of it be exhausted but like feel like I've got it out my system for a little while and then you know a couple of weeks will pass and I'll be like oh, what about medieval manuscripts um, and then I'll do that one so it takes a lot of time but for me it's fine like people ask what the point is sometimes and like the point is I sit here and have a lovely weekend listening to podcasts and then I have something nice to send someone at the end of it and a nice photo so that's that's good for me. Yeah, I suppose it's the same point of hand weaving a fabric, right? It's yeah, the act of doing means something. Yeah, I'm so curious about how how long does it take to make a set? I, I suppose it varies, but on average, yeah, it does vary. Um, the minimum I would say for the kinds of biscuits I end up doing is. First of all, I set aside half a day to do my baking and my sort of base layer of icing, which is the boring bit, but it does need to be done. That takes, you know, a few hours. Um, so I'll do that on a Friday afternoon, usually, you know, <laughs> at the end of the working week. And then I'll spend all day Saturday and Sunday doing the detail work. So it's usually like all day Saturday and then half of Sunday. And then I can photograph them while it's still light. That's the, the dream. They tend to take a minimum of one hour per biscuit. That can go up to like three hours per biscuit, depending on how wildly bizarre a design or I've chosen to do. Um, and it can vary, say like, because I often do a set where they're all different, one biscuit can take half an hour and another biscuit can take three and a half hours. And then as a whole, they sort of come together. Um, so yeah, it does vary. And I just listen to loads of podcast episodes and have loads of cups of tea, which is a very British thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> So do you have a, do you have a favorite set or maybe uh, a favorite set? I have, I think the one that someone asked me this recently and I think at the moment it's the ancient Greek pottery shirts. And I think that's because I've never seen anything. Like I had the idea and um, I sort of Googled it to sort of see if there were any sort of any, any jumping boards I could, yeah, springboards I could use as an idea. I couldn't find anything. Um, so I think because I ended up creating this way of, baking them in the first instance before that I'd just done rectangular biscuits that were quite you know square rectangular and then the detail was just on the surface but these ones I had to find specific artifacts on like museum um you know collection websites and then I would print out the shape of them I'd cut those out as templates I would cut them out with a knife and then I would bake them on like a semi-sphere cake pan 
um, so that they had the 3D shape of an actual pottery shard. And then I had to figure out how to then cover them in icing where the icing wasn't going to run off the sides, make sure that they set okay, find a way of decorating them where I had something supporting them so they weren't going to snap and then sort of painting them. And then I also did something that I'd never done before that, which was this like aging process where I got like this, it's called a scribe tool. It's a needle on a stick. It's very low tech, um, but just like scratching at the surface and then getting like a big, like a, a blusher brush. Do you call it blusher in the US where you just sort of put the powder on your face? Something so, so like a makeup brush. Yeah. And just using that to get food color and like dab on so it looks like dirt, like grime, like it's been in the ground for like centuries. Um, and I just was really happy with how they turned out. So I think that was one where I just had a random idea while I was watching TV and managed to like follow it through and it actually turned out better than I expected. So I think for that reason, they're my favorites for now. <laughs> I love that. I feel like my favorite project is always the one I'm I'm currently doing. But yeah. I know exactly the cookie or the biscuits you're talking about because that was they're so striking. Thank you. Yeah. I I definitely went through your entire Instagram Aww. because I am exactly the niche that that you're talking about. Hooray. Yeah, yeah. A friend sent me your account and said this seems like exactly what you like. Mm. And um that's the joy of having a podcast is that I'm like, well, I'm going to email you and see. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for emailing me. I appreciate it. It's been really nice. Like I didn't realize, I don't know. It does seem like there's this collection of interests that um, has like, I found so many like-minded people on the internet that I was in all different parts of the world. Like you're in the U S and I'm in Birmingham in the UK and we found each other because we have the same interests. So there's something about these biscuits that bring people together. <laughs> which is really nice and I never expected but I love it so much when it's such a beautiful way to to keep doing things we love in the pandemic mm. uh, they're at least in the U.S. shutting down uh, theaters and, yeah. and you know they probably should be um yeah. and so it's it's this beautiful way of, of keeping the costuming alive when you can't go out and see it it's true. And the same with like, I haven't, I don't think I've still not been to a museum since things, things have reopened here more sort of shut down a little bit, but, but they're still relatively open, but I've not ventured back into a museum or a theater yet. Um, but there's something about that. The biggest frisson of excitement I get in the whole process is like, say I've made, say that ancient Greek pottery set is I'll make it and I'll spend hours making it. And then at the end I'll hold like a biscuit and it'll be like I'm holding the thing that it's based on, you know, for a second, I can just pretend that I've like met the original, that I've been to a museum and it's like, this is an ancient artifact. And like, that brings me so much excitement to just, you know, it's a little bit sad, I appreciate. But, um, but no, that's part of the, that's part of the, my favorite thing, I think, is, is that end point of being able to feel like it's something that I get excited about. And then I can, yeah, feel satisfied. I think I, I also love that these are things you can you can send out into the world, but they're not permanent, right? The the yeah. business only lasts so long, and I think that yeah. makes them just so much more special. I think so. I think so. I think it it adds another dimension, I guess, rather than being something that's going to say be permanent and sit in a box or on display or get dusty. Like you eat them and they taste nice, and you'll have a photo and they'll be gone. And you know they they existed and they were nice. But yeah, there is it's something I can't put my finger on it, but it, it does. That seems to be something that, as you say, it seems to be unique about them 
that makes people feel a certain way is a lot of the responses I get on Twitter and Instagram is like, but how could you eat them? Like you couldn't, you had to want to It's like, well, no, no, but you do, because if you don't, then they'll go in the trash. Like they're temporary. They're not, I don't make them because they're temporary. It's just, I choose to work in the medium of biscuits and it's just a side effect of that. Um, but yeah, they get eaten and I really, I want people to eat them. So to answer that question that I always get asked, like, yes, I'm so happy when they get eaten. It will be sad. Like I have a couple of leftover down in my kitchen that either took so long to make that I couldn't send them to anybody or they were just leftovers that didn't get eaten at the time. And it's sad to see them just like waiting there because they're too old now. So now they're going to have to go in the trash. And I would so much rather they got eaten. That is, that is a little bit heartbreaking. Yeah, I think I think the most fascinating part as someone who's a baker is the idea that that a a real person made these because they look (laughs) perfect I mean they are so beautiful and so thank you I see all the imperfections on them sorry say that again I spoke over you oh no 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 I I was just saying it it, it's very aspirational as thank you I think I've heard a nice thing like I honestly just see what I don't like about whatever or like what didn't work out quite as I intended or like which bits I wish I could do again because they're not quite right but I did hear a really nice quote that I find inspiring which again I can't quote it directly but it's the idea that the things that you see as being imperfections what other people value because it shows that they're handmade (laughs) like they're made by by hand so the, the sort of imperfections are actually what make them special so I remind myself of that if I'm looking at a set like oh that line is in the wrong place or something like that but yeah I think I'm trying to get away from this habit but both in my writing and in my baking the first thing I do when I finish a project is make a list of all the things I would do differently if I were going to remake them right now (laughs) and it's hard to enjoy things that way but that is the joy of baking is is you can do it again and yeah so that's always my hope absolutely yeah I mean it's who needs perfection like it's it's good to just be human and move on and do something else (laughs) I aspire to that (laughs) um I want to be mindful of your time uh is there anything else that um you'd like to share with the audience any other work that you want to point them to no I think that's great I mean my book's coming out in June I'm on Twitter I'm at Ella McHawk so E-L-L-A m-c-h-a-w-k um i'm the same on instagram and i'm also on facebook under ella makes cakes i think that's what i'm under i changed it so maybe i'll send you a link to make sure and my website is ellahawkins.com but yeah that's me well thank you so much this has been fabulous um oh thank you for having me oh it's so lovely to meet you this is ella again thanks so much for listening and for supporting the podcast I did think about editing in uh, that Sally Field, You Like Me, You Really Like Me, because uh, since I've taken over the reins, we actually haven't had a drop off of listeners. Uh, So I know I get tired of listening to my own voice, but then I do all the editing. So I want to thank everyone who's been supporting us, and I hope that you will continue to like, share, subscribe, uh, follow on whatever platform. Uh, Maybe not Spotify these days. I will be posting bakes, including uh, the stained glass bake that we talk about today as I make them. Uh, So be sure that you are following my Instagram, which is Proofing and Lies. And I occasionally tweet my pictures as well, Proofing capital L. Uh, Every little bit helps get the word out. And I will keep you updated on when episodes are returning.